I want you to think of a seed. Any kind will do. Do you ever wonder how something so small can take a transformative journey, becoming something entirely new? Nothing but water and sun contribute to this complete evolution. Well, in this episode, we take you on the journey of a seed, how before it's even planted, it's been shaped, modified, created to be a warrior in the field. Facing opposition in weather, insects, and disease, how research on campus is giving those seeds the armor they need to grow into their full potential, and how another researcher is taking cotton waste and giving it new life, one that's reusable, biodegradable, and could help save our planet. That journey starts now on Fearless. I'm leaving campus, heading east toward Martin Luther King Boulevard. On this stifling summer morning, I'm headed out to the FBRI, the Fiber and Biopolymer Research Institute. There are a few offices out here, but its primary purpose is to house the enormous floor-to-ceiling cotton equipment that's easily worth millions of dollars. So it's where you begin to give orientation, because until this stage, Everything is That's Eric Kay. He's an associate VP of research in the Office of Research and Innovation. He's also a Horn professor in plant and soil science. Eric's story is fascinating. Originally from France, he spent the last 40 years of his career immersed in cotton fields across the world. When I was a student, one day, my professor asked me to write a paper on cotton. I was doing my PhD in plant genetics. Never saw a cotton plant in my life. Obviously, it doesn't grow in Paris. But he's a fast learner, and that paper he wrote generated a lot of attention. I was ready to leave, and the lady tells me, okay, you know, the head of the cotton breeding program is here today. Do you want to talk to him? I said, sure, you know. And I talked to the guy for two, three hours. At the end of the discussion, he said, okay, we need guys like you in Africa. I never thought one minute. For some reason, I still don't know why I did that. But I just said yes. I came back the following morning signed a contract and left without finishing my PhD to be a cotton breeder in Africa. And that was the beginning. He would eventually go back to finish his PhD while balancing his career in cotton research. What started in Africa would take him back to France and eventually to Lubbock, Texas. So one day they just called me and they said, okay, you know, Texas Tech is looking for somebody. You have the perfect profile. Do you want to meet? They sure. Meet them in New Orleans during a cotton conference. I said yes. <laughs> Lubbock is known for a lot of things. Texas Tech, Buddy Holly, and our wide open spaces. It's no secret that there's plenty of that here. But we know that land is put to good use. In fact, Eric says everyone knows about Lubbock. Basically around the world, everybody knows Lubbock. You know, in, in the cotton industry, everybody, you can go anywhere in the world, they know it. And he soon learned all the reasons why. The Hub City is the epicenter of cotton production. According to the USDA, the South Plains is the largest cotton-producing area in the world. It consists of just 19 counties, and some years will yield more than 3 million acres. Beyond that, Eric saw potential. He saw a future. 
not only for production, but for research and to study every stage and season of life for this glorious crop that fuels our economy. And he gets to do all of that at the FBRI. You have nothing like that anywhere in the world. A place where you can go from seed cotton to a piece of fabric and everything in between. It just doesn't exist. Nobody has that anywhere. You know, in the U.S., university settings, I mean, there's nothing that is even remotely close. The FBRI is a massive building. It has to be in order to accommodate everything that lives here. Eric isn't exaggerating when he said that thing, where you can go from seed cotton to fabric and everything in between. The click from Eric's dress shoes echoes down the empty concrete hall of the facility as he guides us on a tour. His crisp, starched shirt and dress pants would fit perfectly in a bank or any corporate setting. But this is his office. The one-ton metal machinery is familiar. He enthusiastically describes what these machines do, from separating raw cotton, eliminating the seeds and stems, to creating the threads and even dyeing them. Eric focuses a lot on the distribution side of the industry, working with producers and consumers, creating space for the relationship between those two to flourish. Our first customer is a producer. They need to be happy. They need to have a good yield. They need to make money. But just the beginning. Then you have consumers all around the planet. need to be happy too. So you have the three segments. All of them need to be happy if we want to keep selling our cotton. Not, not just the guy next door. You have your cotton, you sell it, end of the story. No, it's just the beginning of the story. <laughs> Before we leave, Eric introduces us to a man by the name of Noradina Beatty. His office is next door to Eric's. After a brief chat, Eric tells us that we don't want to miss including Nordine's work in our podcast. He tells us that what he's doing is remarkable. Nordine is already successful in his research, but now he's working on something that is a real game changer. You see, Nordine's work begins at the end. His story's coming up in just a bit on Fearless. At the beginning of a seed's life, there's Luis Herrera Estrella. So plants are extremely, extremely versatile. His work has the opportunity to create big changes for farmers across the world. He's a National Academy of Sciences member, the first ever at Texas Tech, and the director of the Institute of Genomics for Crop Abiotic Stress Tolerance. It's a really long title that basically means, how can we develop a seed using science to be more tolerant in extreme conditions? Well, cotton is, is one of the main crops in, in West Texas, and it's very well adapted to the conditions, the environmental conditions of this, this part of the environment. It's very hot weather, little water, lot of light. So that helped us to establish experiments under very natural conditions that will serve us to face uh, what the problems that we will have um, climate change. This work isn't specific to any one type of crop. It could make a difference in any type, anywhere. But in this region, the reality is that the weather conditions can be extreme. Like Luis said, the heat, the wind, the droughts. He's looking at this formula and saying, okay, we can't change the weather, but we could change the crop. So that's what they're doing. This year, that there is very little rain, and that affects not only cotton production, but the production of any crop. So we need to do research 
to create plant varieties that can produce the same with less water. So we are studying what are the mechanisms that different plant species use to make more efficient the use of water so that they can produce with half of the water. As you know, lack of moisture creates a harder, denser soil. So most of the plant roots have a harder time expanding to find water deeper below the surface. So we are trying to understand why some plants have the capacity to penetrate very hard soils. Because if we understand those processes, then we can incorporate uh, these traits into cotton and other crops to make them more water efficient. We should be able to achieve the same productivity with less water. This can be applied to other crops that are important to West Texas farming. Luis was recruited to the Texas Tech campus in 2018. Let me just say that he and his work are kind of a big deal. Erica Kay vouched for him. He fought to get him here. While Eric was giving me a tour around the FBRI, he told me about Luis and the process of bringing him to Texas Tech. Luis has his own greenhouse on campus to do this research. It's pretty much smack dab in the center. He says when he was brought to Tech, there were two factors that made all the difference to him. Simply put, he says there's not a better place to study cotton than this place we call home. This is a perfect natural experimental system because you have to face here all the extreme environments that any farmer in the world can needs to face. The second aspect is that I like challenges. And I saw more opportunities here to build a new institute. So I think I, my contribution here is going to be more important because I, I, I can help mentoring young scientists and I can help uh, integrating a strategic plan to, to produce research at Texas Tech that is going to have a greater impact. These big thoughts, big plans are brewing in his greenhouse, where foggy white paint glass is held together by shiny metal pillars. This is really powerful work. Being a farmer is filled with uncertainty. Rain and heat don't just make a minor difference. It could be the difference between tens of thousands of dollars in a season. But this, this has the opportunity to provide a stability that farmers have never had. So if we can understand what are the genetic secrets for this adaptation, then we should be able to engineer plants to perform much better on their adverse conditions that we see we'll have to face in the near future. Luis lights up about this work. I believe that it's because he's thinking beyond the cotton bowl. He's thinking about ways to expand his knowledge, to test the limits, and bring along the next generation of scientists in his field. His groundwork may just be the path that they follow for the next great invention. But he's also thinking about the here and the now, the ways that his discoveries can change a farmer's life. He says this new breed of crops may be on the market in as soon as five years. And in the meantime, He's covering a lot of ground in this industry. One important thing is that we need to find a stronger interaction with the farmers. So how can we have a more direct way to explain what we do so that they understand what are going to be the possibilities in the future for their farms? I tell Luis that this season is all about bridging the gap between researchers like him and the rest of us to share the stories of how the people that we don't even know are doing their work to create a better world for all of us, for the future. And he hears that. 
I would love to have them visit in our lab and, and, and show them the new technologies we are using and the type of projects we are, we are doing. Come and visit and see what we do. As a boy growing up in Morocco, Nouradine Abidi always dreamed of becoming a doctor. When we met at the FBRI, he told us that in his opinion, there's not a more honorable line of work. But medical school isn't quite what the future had in store. Today, he's the managing director of the FBRI. And while he may not be saving lives as a doctor, he's giving new life to a plant that's critical to the agriculture industry. To be honest, I never wanted to be a chemist. <laughs> it's funny how life does that, isn't it? How sometimes it seems to know us better than we know ourselves. He pursued his master's degree in chemistry in Morocco and then went on to get his PhD in France, where he met a fellow scientist who would introduce him to the next 20 years of his life. So I was trying to discuss with her and I was looking at, you know, the nature is making a polymer and I was trying to make it in the lab. So I came here just for one year to, to work on cotton and see, you know, comparing uh, a polymer that is made by nature, by plant. Before coming to, to Lubbock, I'd never seen a, a cotton plant. I'd never seen a cotton ball. For me, it was just, you know, closing. So I was really uh, fascinated by that process. And I'm, you know, almost 23 years later, I'm still here, so. So the life of a cotton seed goes like this. Planting season is in the summer months, from May to June. And about five months later, it's harvest season. But during that time, it can be a roller coaster of uncontrollable variables that will determine everything. Because we have no control in the weather. So even if we can put the best seed in the soil, and then if it does not rain, or if it rains too much, or if the cotton is subjected to heat stress. So Talk about tough. And all these things impact yield. After cotton is stripped from the fields and processed, the only thing left is cotton that would otherwise be considered discounted or trash. And after that, I start to be interested in converting the lower quality cotton. He's not interested in letting anything go to waste. So he developed a way to put it to good use. Cotton does not melt. So if cotton could melt, then we can melt it like, like polyester or nylon or, or acrylic and then, you know, spin in a fiber or something. So it does not melt. So we have to convert it to a gel. And that gel, now we need to find ways to make it as a product. So one of them is a plastic. So taking that, then, then cast it and make plastic from it. It, it looks very similar to a plastic that is made from petroleum-based polymer. You know this plastic, similar to the ones that we get at the grocery store. But in reality, they couldn't be any more different. If you put it in the soil, bury it in the soil, and then leave it in there, uh, 30 days from or, or two months, it's completely gone. He has created a replacement for one-time use plastics, a replacement that is completely biodegradable. The plastic is really creating a huge problem. I think you have seen this, you know, the accumulation in the, of plastics in the oceans. There's this thing that's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. You've probably heard of it. It's actually a pretty big deal, and it has been for years. Basically, it's an island of trash, including plastic bags, bottles, and other forms of single-use plastics that are caught together in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Debris may hang out in that garbage patch 
not just for months, but for years. This is from a video that the National Science Foundation released in 2022. Nordine is intently focused on plastic bags. The problem is not the big piece of the plastic. The problem is the plastic by itself does not biodegrade. It will, with the action of sunlight, it will degrade in small pieces. These are called microplastics. He tells me about a study that recently took place in China. Scientists there theorized that because table salt comes from the sea, they could contain traces of microplastic contaminants. And what they found is alarming. 90% of the, of the samples they collected contaminate, were contaminated with microplastics. See, that's what Noradine is addressing with this plastic design. At 21 days, you can see that it starts to degrade. He shows us one of the lab spaces where samples are laid out neatly on a black tabletop. 49 days, you have some some spots of uh, probably microorganisms. There are samples and dishes with numbers written in marker. 21 days, 49 days, 56 days. The final one is almost empty. Two months is gone. They're testing different thickness samples right now. Just behind us, there is a contraption that kind of reminds me of pictures I've seen of a polygraph machine, with a brass cylinder right in the middle hovering over a large open space. It's covered by a clear plastic wall on all sides. He says that this is a regular 3D printer. Yeah, that's the second part of what this gel is designed for. So I have this syringe, and then I'm modifying it to heat it and then start printing the same. Next to the 3D printer, there's an empty carton of sour cream. He's using it to find the right conditions to print, to test the limits of what this cotton gel can do. This has already received a patent. The patent for the plastic bag is so close he can feel it. Just they have just review. You know, we send them all. Yeah, we send them all the information. You have claims, and then you have examiner looking at. I think they they put two or three looking at those claims and looking at the science and. Uh, It has been published, but not approved yet. It takes forever. He says it's an international patent, which tend to take longer. But he's patient. He believes in what he's doing. And so do I. Once it's on the market, this could be revolutionary. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay, it was good to see you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. I leave this interview inspired. Inspired by a person's dedication to this global issue and how he's taken his own knowledge developed in this West Texas city of 200,000 people and invented something with possible global impact. I'm proud that this research is connected to Texas Tech and Lubbock and that people like Nordine are representing Red Raiders so well. He has two sons that he's encouraging to become doctors someday. He will always believe in that honorable profession. But what he's done here is truly extraordinary and could change the way we approach single-use plastics. And that seems like pretty honorable work to me. Fearless is produced by the Texas Tech Office of Communications and Marketing. It's hosted by me, Taylor Peters, with special help from Allison Firth. Editing and sound design by Thomas Boyd. Fearless is a Texas Tech production. From here, it's possible. Hey everyone, it's Taylor. Don't forget to like, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast.